You're listening to episode 56 with Kent Theory, former chairman and chief executive officer of DaVita Inc. You're listening to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor podcast. When I started at DaVita, we had about 8,000 people. We began to grow and began to invest in our culture. We called ourselves the DaVita Village. And my title was mayor. We were a community first and a company second, a community that just happens to be organized in the form of a company, which did not mean we didn't care about financial results. Keeping the village economy sustainable is job one. Today, we have an exceptional guest joining us, a founding board member of Endeavor Colorado and former chairman and chief executive officer of DaVita, Kent Theory, joins us on the show today. If you're unfamiliar with Kent, he was CEO of DaVita from 1999 to 2019, which is a Fortune 250 company with 65,000 teammates across 12 countries. He stepped down as executive chair in June 2020, and during this time, DaVita grew revenues from approximately $1 billion to $11 billion, emerged as the leading clinical innovator in the kidney care community and a leader in clinical outcomes generally, and grew equity market value from approximately $150 million to $10 billion and a stock price of approximately $0.70 cents to $100. Kent made a public pledge in 2015 that DaVita would be one of the first Fortune 500 companies to have a majority diverse board, and they fulfilled that pledge in 2016. He is significantly involved in the national U.S. democracy renewal movement and has successfully led five major statewide ballot initiatives in Colorado in the last four years. Kent serves on the global board of the Nature Conservancy and was chair of the Global Public Policy Committee. He also founded and chairs Colorado Thrives, a group consisting primarily of large Colorado company CEOs, uh, which focuses on advancing economic mobility and the general well-being of Colorado and all of its citizens. He is also the founder and chairman of Advance EDU, an innovative college focused on providing job competency and extensive support services to low-income students. Kent was founding chair of the Colorado Gap Fund and fundraising chair for the Climber Fund. Together, these two funds have raised over $80 million to help small businesses owned by women, people of color, veterans, and rural citizens during COVID. Prior board seats include the Harvard Business School Advisory Board, Oxford Health Plan, and Varian. Also, he has done extensive advisory work for KKR. Kent is currently an advisor to Guild and Techstars and sits on the board of Sondermine. And today, Scott Miller, managing director of our Endeavor Colorado office, sits down with Kent to learn about how he was able to cultivate a distinctively engaged culture at DaVita that has a global reputation for developing well-rounded general managers and leaders, so much so that his techniques have been the subject of leadership and culture case studies written both by Harvard and Stanford. And as Kent is regularly invited to speak on these subjects at top universities and companies, we're so grateful to have him join our community of listeners today. So Scott, take it away. Thank you, Jessica. I'm Scott Miller, Managing Director of Endeavor Colorado, and I'm here with Kent Theory, former chairman and CEO of DaVita and founding Endeavor Colorado board member. Kent, before we dig in, can you share a bit of your history at DaVita, the scale and growth that you led so that the listeners have a bit more context on your background? Well, gladly, and, and thanks for having me here today, Scott and Jessica and Endeavor. Uh, we grew DaVita over 20 years from about 
$1 billion to a peak of about $15 billion. And then we did a divestiture at that point. We grew the number of clinics from about 400 to over 4,000. We grew the stock price by over 100 times. We grew our market share here in the U.S. from about 7% to about 40% across the country. We grew from one country to 12. And, and we started a little pharmacy business from zero and grew that to a billion dollars. And so that gives you a little snapshot of some of my exposure to growth and where I accumulated scars to match. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, today we're going to really dig into you know, operationalizing in high growth mode. So let's jump right in. Most entrepreneurs that we work with have ambitious hiring goals. How do these CEOs and founders need to operationalize their hiring you know, to meet these aggressive goals as they're scaling? Yeah, I think it's such a core question because Companies that are enjoying, experience, pursuing, succeeding in unconventional growth, meaning rapid growth, sometimes hyper rapid growth, so often end up relying on conventional techniques for doing their hiring and, and, and firing, I would add, as well. And, and simply the math doesn't work, that when you're growing at a certain rate and you just presume for a moment, do the math that I'm going to be hiring three or four new direct reports because of the growth, and I'm going to interview a number of candidates each time before I select. And then you do the math on the number of hours it takes to do that. Uh, and then the number of people that are going to be involved in the interview process. Literally, a linear relationship on the conventional time it takes to do interviewing and reviewing doesn't work as you achieve hyper growth. It will break down. You'll either be hiring people without enough thoughtfulness or you won't have enough people to, to handle your growth, one of the two. So you simply must start with a blank page and do something new. And I think of it in terms of creating a, a focused factory that is sensitive to every step of the value chain. Number one is you've got to allocate the right talent and the right intellectual energy to solving this challenge. It needs to be stared at. It needs to have some creative brainstorming. You need to think about different ways to do every single bit more efficiently and more effective. Moving on to number two, getting the right applicants. It's relatively easy for a sexy company to get a lot of applicants. It is not necessarily easy for them to be able to get the best applicants. And for that, you have to think again in terms of market segmentation. Where will your message resonate the most strongly? What companies might have deep pools of talent accessible talent, uh, that's a good fit with yours, et cetera, et cetera. What geographies can work and not work? So figuring out the right way to stimulate high quality leads, not just a lot of leads, is equally important. Then we move on to the evaluation process. So crucial and so intangible in many ways, but not in as many ways as some companies would have you believe. The And I'll make seven different points here. One is really think about the filters for what you're looking for. What does outstanding look like? What are the actual insightful things you have to say about the qualities you care about most for a job, as opposed to just the generic list of individual attributes, skill sets, etc. Try to identify where the rubber meets the road, what things are very clearly differentially valuable for you. Now, now number two, 
moves into the efficiency realm, your round one ought to have a relatively pass rate onto round two, because otherwise the math of efficiency just doesn't work. So you want to force some pretty strong decision-making after a very efficient round one. You can always go back to some of those people if you ever want, but rarely will you do so. Number three of seven, I'm a strong believer in the case study approach. When you think of conventional interviews, asking a person a question, having them answer the types of questions you're asking and the types of questions they're answering, those aren't in fact great indicators for their ability to do the job. But giving them the opportunity, as many companies do, to prepare a case study uh, that demonstrates a body of work that they've been engaged in in the past, not only do you get a much better view of how they think about real life business situations, you also get a sense of their ego, of their personal security, of their intellectual curiosity, of, of their ability to admit to mistakes and lessons learned. Uh, number four, a, a micro technique that I feel really helps cut through a lot of noise is that as opposed to just describing a person and their strengths and weaknesses, force everybody to either list the two or three reasons to hire or the two or three reasons to pass for each person. Make them do both because that forces you to break through a lot of the clutter and noise and, and non-differentiating attributes and get to really the nub of it. If you were to make this person an offer, what would be the one or two strongest reasons you're doing it? And similarly, force that person, even if they're recommending a hire, force them to say, well, if I was to recommend a pass on this person, what would be my reasons? It often leads to some epiphanies that force you to go back and think some more. Number five of seven is, I believe, in having interviewers share their insights as a person proceeds through the process so that you're not starting from scratch. You can always over listen to someone and just accept what their assessment was. That's not going to happen often. In fact, instead, it's a benefit for you to know what they felt most strongly positively about and negatively about so you can think about how to test, test those premises. Number six of seven, it is so important to have a live conversation about the candidate on a timely basis. If you wait a day, if you wait two days, if you wait three days, the quality of interaction, the quality of open-mindedness, the, the ability to generate incremental insights about that person plummet. The, the half-life is short. This, the, the slope of the curve is strong. The seventh and finally, if you care about core values, they simply have to be an explicit part of your process where you talk about them, meaning the people in your company, and the candidate has to talk about them. This does a number of things. It reminds your own people of how much you care about them and how much they should be a filter. Uh, it also demonstrates to the candidate how much you actually care about them in a pragmatic, real-world kind of way, not just some words on a poster or on a commercial. And lastly, you'll begin to get a, you'll begin to get a sense of whether or not, in fact, people buy off on the fact that you are differentially living those core values or not, which is incredible data for how you run your company. So let's presume for a moment now that we've done all that and we've evaluated this person and we want to recruit them. Well, here I think of the Disney precept of everything speaks. That's why at Disney, you go, going way back, they make their parking lots really clean, really well signed, 
really accessible with relevant decorations and sound, etc. Because that made an impression on the customer before they even got out of their car or when they got out of their car before they even got to the ticket window. So everything speaks in recruiting. How, how crisply do you schedule things? How clean are your instructions for what you want them to do? How service-oriented are you? Do, you? do you run the sessions on time? Are you respectful? Are you grateful? Now, second attribute of effective recruiting is listening, listening, listening. Uh, it's often interesting to ask people about their recruiting style. 90% of what they say will be about what they say uh, as opposed to the art of asking great questions. And so that as you move through the process, you're gaining more and more insight into what that person prefers, what they think they want. And if you're doing the questions right, how they stack up your reality with what their filters are. I, I always like really having people ask the candidate, hey, if, when you go home to your, your spouse or your best friend after today, what are you going to tell them? What are the two, two or three reasons you're most excited about working here? And what are your one or two biggest concerns? And so you're getting data every step in the way of what their preferences are, how they think about those preferences, et cetera. And then lastly, I'd just like to talk about tendencies and predictive analysis. It's ironic how many highly analytical companies and highly analytical executives are not analytical in looking at the data on hiring. And so what ought to happen everywhere, all the more important when you're growing rapidly because you need, you create a lot of data quickly because you're adding people uh, and you need that because you're going to be making so many decisions quickly, is actually tracking. How good is Scott Miller, Scott Miller at evaluating? Let's stack up the evaluations he did over the last four months with our reality on the 17 people that we hired. How often was he right? How often was he wrong? It's not a black and white score, of course, but in general, people get it right, get it wrong, or it's sort of in the middle. Uh, similarly, uh, who's the best at recruiting? Actually keeping track. When someone joins, say, well, who are the key influencers in your decision you made? And then they say, oh, it was Jessica was key. You need to know who your best evaluators are. That can be totally data-driven. And you need to know who your best micro-recruiters are. And that can be largely data-driven. All of this data at your fingertips just has to be picked up in an efficient way and used. In addition, other than hiring, when you think about scaling a team, you have to think about firing with equal intensity. And so you want to think about, gosh, of the of the 150 people we hired this year, we ended up separating from 36 of them within a year. What were the most common reasons, forgetting for a second who recruited or who evaluated, what were the most common things we missed? What attribute did they have? What deficiency did they have that made them not a good fit for this job? Oh my gosh, it's mainly this, or it's mainly that, or it's mainly this for Scott, but it's something different for Jessica. All that data is right at your fingertips and often not looked at in a high-value-added, synthetic kind of way. And lastly, forcing decisiveness is just key because having mediocre people from a fit point of view, it's not that they're mediocre in everything, it's not that they're mediocre human beings, but they're a mediocre fit for your enterprise at that point in time. Forcing decisiveness is a key part of scaling successfully, or you end up with people who aren't a good fit for too long. And so what we often do is after X months, 
And X can be different based on the company and situation. You force a person to say, hey, out of the last eight people we hired, how many would you rate a star? Let's just call it after five months. How many would you rate a star? How many would you rate solid? And how many would you say are a question mark? You might want a fourth category that's more negative, but question mark works. And for any question mark, you want to then talk to the manager and say, hmm, the fact that you've got a lot of data on this person, their question mark, leads me to think that the odds are they're not going to make it. Now, if you have a really good reason for explaining why you don't have enough data after five months, like you changed their job definition three times, or they had a, a sick child, or they were uh, low on technical skills and they're playing catch up, then that's fine. Then you can go another five months. But if there isn't a specific and compelling explanation for why uh, a question mark is acceptable, then you want people to be decisive because the math is usually pretty clear. And what, what I used to do is if people a second time wanted to say someone was still a question mark, I would say, well, now uh, you're really doubling down in terms of your personal credibility because you ought to have been able to draw a conclusion by this time and something is amiss if you haven't, which is not to say that conclusion is going to be accurate all the time, but it's going to be accurate a high percentage of the time and when you want to scale in a hyper-growth environment, you've got to go with the numbers, you've got to go with the percentages, you've got to go with the data, you've got to go with the metrics. Otherwise, you're going to have too many mistakes to sustain your growth because you'll have diminishing quality per capita. So there you go, Scott, a quick core dump on hiring in a hyper-growth environment. Katie, that was uh, fantastic. One thing you talked about uh, towards the beginning was was the focus factory and, and the conversation that you and I have had in the past with some entrepreneurs. I, you know, I, I think, who would you tap to lead this, this type of effort? Because it, it's so core to the success of, of companies going through these hyper- uh, Scott, I'm so glad you asked that because I, I forgot to hit it and it's so important. Many companies under allocate talent and energy to this challenge. Uh, we, when we were starting one of our other rapid growth businesses, I literally took one of our best vice presidents and said, you're going you're gonna to be in charge of recruiting and, and weeding, so to speak, for this new growth company. And that's all you're going to do. Because given the numbers, we need to have an incredibly effective, focused factory based on analysis, built with operating discipline, super credible for the actual general managers and other people in the field. And so what the mistake a lot of companies make is they pick someone who's of, of modest seniority in human resources, and they become the owner of the, the designer and owner of the process. That doesn't work. Or they say it's going to be a very talented seasoned executive, but it's going to be the 17th thing they're doing. Neither of those models will work. You've got to find a real talent with the right skill mix for this task, which is both a design challenge and an execution challenge, and they've got to have credibility. And if you're not willing to do that because of the opportunity cost, because that's, of course, the hellacious balance you're, you're striking every day as a, as a young, high-growth company, if you're not willing to accept that opportunity cost, you're probably going to underclub on talent. In a year or two downstream, you're going to be in a lot worse situation then if you bit the bullet, took one of your A players and said, you're going to spend half of your time on this. It's going to drive half of your comp. And yet you're actually going to have a great time with it. As much as you might resist and say, no, I like 
I like running sales. I like running marketing. I like running a big region. That this is this is an incredibly creative and leveraged skill and talent and challenge. It's going to give you a high profile with the board. It's going to allow you to demonstrate broader wings. And then when this phase is over and you do this for six months, nine months, 15 months, you're going to move on back to your prior path. Well, that That's excellent. And this might be too in the weeds, so let me know. But you, know, you talked a lot about data and you know making sure you're you're mapping out that factory process at the beginning, but then also collecting data and acting upon that. Do you have any suggestions on the tools that the entrepreneur should be using to set that up, or how they should be looking to you know collect and, and evaluate that data? Yeah, the great thing is it's not that difficult because I would keep the characterizations really simple. Now, perhaps the most, the most significant counterexample to what I just said is identifying what did you miss on? So we hired Scott. Six months later, we're going to part ways with Scott. What did we get wrong on that? That does take some synthesis where you've got to look at what the evaluation was up front uh, and then look at the reasons for the separation. Well, first, you have to have the operating discipline to make sure that someone is actually thoughtful about why Scott didn't work out. Because otherwise, you lose the whole learning. If it's just too superficial, they wanted more money, or they didn't like the hours, or whatever, what that you've, you've got to make sure you capture high-integrity, thoughtful data at that magic moment, because it unlocks a treasure trove of value. But So that's, that's the one area where there are some software tools that can help in this. And it's also why you need forethought, because if you don't design the right tool or use the right software to document the reasons you hired some again in a way that allows for all sorts of discretionary discussion but in the end gets captured in a relatively simple replicable replicable way then you're gonna have a real hard time comparing the separation data from six months downstream but there are tools now that allow you a fair amount of of latitude and then whenever you want to you can always have a real person spend time staring at 30 of the departures and actually rereading stuff and, and not just relying on the, on, the, on the summary that will be generated by whatever uh, tool you're using, but actually take one step further in, in doing that. So the, the key is, is making sure you're documenting why you chose someone and what you predicted about them and why it didn't work and, and, and not in excessive detail but enough to draw certain conclusions so people go, oh my gosh, I never knew I had this tendency when I was interviewing. I never knew I had this tendency when I was interviewing. Yeah, that, that's great. And I'd love to dig into the clinical roles for, for just a short second for the health, those listening who are in healthcare. Can you elaborate on how you might adapt you know, this hiring while scaling specifically to clinical roles? Yeah, I think the, on the clinical front, you need to have clinical people involved in crafting the process, the questions, the way to ask a question, so that you are actually forcing, encouraging, provoking much more insight into the person's technical command of the subject matter and, and the, the personality and values with which they deliver on, on that care. And so I Often it's, it's going to be someone who's normally running recruiting in HR who works on the, the, the form, the data, 
the questions, et cetera. Up front, you've got to get clinical people who have a passion for this, helping you nail down the right way to evoke the right disclosure, both of technical command and of, and of sort of the style and mode of delivery. In addition, you need to make sure that consistent with that Disney principle, the candidates that are interviewing with you or in your process, because the process is broader than interviewing, senses your clinical passion, your clinical excitement, your clinical intentions, your clinical aspirations. It's one thing to be asked a question by someone and then you say all that. That can be modestly persuasive. But if in all the questions you ask them, in the kind of data you ask them for, the kind of experiences you ask them about, then you're sending that message in an indirect but far more powerful way because it's legitimate. It's what you're demonstrating you care about as opposed to responding to a question they ask at the end and you're spouting the normal platitudes about how you care. Yeah, and another question we often hear from CEOs, you know, founder CEO talk a lot about culture as they scale. And I know that that's something that's important to you and and, and a common trend by those founder CEOs is to hire every, you know, is to interview every single person before they get hired at the company. Both to that question specifically and more broadly, like when's the right time for a CEO to, to stop doing that? And how should a CEO rethink their role when they're going through this hyperscale and their involvement in the hiring process? I, I happen to believe that a CEO should stop doing that relatively early because it's not sustainable and therefore you ought to start developing the alternative muscles, models, and techniques earlier rather than later. So it's not to say that there isn't some incremental value. I simply think the opportunity cost renders the net pickup minimal and a CEO's time is so valuable. So I would, I would assert a relatively low number before you stop doing that. It's, it's fine if you're doing it once a week or something like that. But beyond that, I think the opportunity cost is, is terrible. Now, now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the CEO is not involved, but it means that instead of, doing, instead of doing three interviews a week for positions that are not direct reports to the, to the CEO, instead, every two weeks, you have an hour and a half luncheon with the last six people who were hired. And so they get the direct interaction, but you're not trying to evaluate at that point. You're just, you're just promoting that which you wanna promote about your strategy, your culture, yourself, whatever, and you're picking up leverage. And you can still therefore cover 100%. And you can go all the way up as, as I did in some instances, where I'd be with batches of 25, 30 people. And it'd be 45 minutes. It's still a highly memorable event. I would argue absolutely 80% as effective as doing a one-on-one. And in some cases more effective because many people are not going to ask you questions, are not going to ask provocative questions in particular, but in a group of 30, some will. And actually, I would probably argue that the benefit per new teammate is actually higher when they're in a class in a group than if it's done in too small a group or one-on-one. And so, and then, and then also making sure that it's not just you, that, that whatever mode you decide on with respect to how you'll put your personal imprint on a very high percentage of people in their first X months in the enterprise, that the people that work for you are derivatively doing a comparable thing.
KT, this has been great. I always really enjoy spending time with you around culture and hiring and and everything going into scaling. We're going to move into the Endeavor segment. So these are just a few quick questions that we like to ask every guest that joins our show. So the founder of Endeavor, who you know well, Linda Rottenberg, has always said, call me crazy. Crazy is a compliment. So we like to ask each guest on our show, what has been your call me crazy crazy moment? Well, I think for my call me crazy moment uh, was uh, when I started at Davida, we had about 8,000 people, and we began to grow and began to invest in our culture. We called ourselves the DeVita Village, and my title was mayor. We were a community first and a company second, a community that just happens to be organized in the form of a company, which did not mean we didn't care about financial results, because if you're the mayor of a village, keeping the village economy sustainable is job one, because you can't do anything else good for the people uh, if you don't maintain a sustainable economy. So there's nothing about being a community first and a company second, a, a village as we put it, uh, that means you don't care, uh, that you're not realistic about the need to perform from a business point of view. But as we progress through that first year, year and a half, the top 800 people or so had, to a, in a very significant way, bought off on the fact that we really believed in our mission and core values, that we wanted to behave like a community, that we were gonna invest differentially in our people and their personal and professional growth. And so I said, uh, and so when I was out talking to managers across the country, because we were spread across about 500 locations at that point, and said, well, how are we doing with all the caregivers who uh, are working in the clinics five days a week and, and are hands-on with the patient. And so we, can, we can't even ever get everybody together at any particular time because we're open six days a week, three to four shifts a day. And so even within a single clinic, you can't get people together. And, and I asked how we were doing in enrolling the other thousands of people who were in many cases hourly wage earners into the notion that we were a community with the attendant rights and responsibilities. And, and the answer was, well, we're doing sort of okay because, because it is such a high-pressure, relentless, hands-on. It's very difficult to break through and, and, and build the broader trust in the organization outside the clinic that's in Tulsa or New York or California. And, and they kind of said that, and of course, we can't bring those, all those people together, the technicians, the social workers, the nurses, the accounts payable clerks, we can't bring them together like we bring managers together where we actually have fulsome conversations about our mission, our values, our lives, our concerns, our complaints. And, and I said, well, if that's the only way for us to become a true community, we'll do that. And we established something called an academy. And in that academy meant that every single teammate was invited to come for two days of time around our mission, around our values, around ourselves, our lives, our aspirations. For many of our people, they had never been on a plane before, certainly never been on a business trip. Many had never checked into a hotel. And we also found out that many of them had never been exposed to an open bar. So we had to shut that down after the first few <laughs> academies. And, and in those academies, we would do things like the Myers-Briggs test. Now, for a lot of us on a call like this, we've We've gone to a university, we had a graduate education, we're well-read or friends well-read. The, the Myers-Briggs test, that kind of self-awareness thing, you forget 
how powerful it was the first time you did it, how it did increase your self-awareness, your mindfulness, your understanding of others, your default behaviors, etc. So when I said we were going to allow everybody to stay in a hotel, be sitting next to maybe a, an MBA, next to a technician making $15 an hour, next to a doctor, next to a nurse, no titles on any of the name tags. We're all equal before the village mission and values. Uh, so when I said we we're going to invite everybody to come and do things like the Myers-Briggs test and have open Q&A sessions on our mission and values, people said that was absolutely crazy. We did it anyway, uh, and it turned out to be this spectacularly powerful way of adding value to the lives of our teammates and their families, and in so doing, having them take care of our patients in ever more special ways and take care of each other in ever more special ways. I love that. Really just putting money behind, behind the, and, and time and effort behind creating that. That's something I think a lot of our entrepreneurs could learn from. So we'll run through these last few here. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm just wrapping up reading Undaunted, the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. I read it about 10, 15 years ago by Stephen Ambrose and was incredibly struck by the, 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 the combination of the aspirations that underlie that whole expedition from President Jefferson to Lewis and Clark and the, and the other men, in this case, all men who signed up, and then their tenacity and pragmatism and ability to improvise to actually pull it off. And so I thought, since I recently stepped in after 28 years of being a CEO, that I should reread it and think of this next stage of my life and, and look for something similar where I maintain a sense of aspiration and, and take on something with tenacity and a sense of purpose. That's great. And what's some of the best business advice you have personally received? I think in terms of best advice, I'd list a few things. Uh, one is a, just a very powerful quote. Since I was an MBA and thought I was pretty smart and had some successes early in my career at Bain & Company, a consulting firm, et cetera, that someone who said, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. and, and it took me a while to grasp that. I was a little too eager to show I was smart, to, to let people know I'd had a very successful early career. I was too much thinking about having people buy off on the notion that I was good as opposed to as opposed to them becoming persuaded that I really cared about them as people, as a part of families, as people with career aspirations, et cetera. And so, and then the second one is one cannot pour from an empty cup. I was on a, a bike trip in Vietnam many years ago and ran into a monastery out in the middle of nowhere and a Vietnamese monk, we kind of talked a bit through a translator and then he painted with, I don't know what you call that kind of, you know, lithography or whatever the right word is, but one of those scrolls for me. And, and when he finished, the translator uh, told me that that's what it said. When one cannot pour from an empty cup, you, you cannot give what you do not have. If you don't keep yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually healthy, if you don't keep your cup reasonably full, your ability to fill the cups of others will be heavily circumscribed. That's great. And that's a, I think that's a mistake many of us 
seem to repeat in our careers running on, on empty cups. Well, Kent, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this has been a, a phenomenal interview and, and conversation, and I'm privileged to be a part of it. So on behalf of Endeavor, thank you for joining this podcast, and, and we'll hand it off to Jessica. Well, and thank you, Scott, and thank you, Jessica, and to all the Endeavor folks out there. I hope you are enjoying the incredible vitality of the Endeavor Network as I have. It's what we might do is quite something. Let's get after it. Perfect. Thanks, KT. Special thanks to Kent for joining us on the show. For more information on this episode, head to our website at the multiplier effect podcast.org. See you next week for an all new episode. 